Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to 12 Week Relationships. This is your place for better relationships in weeks, not years. My name is Pi. I'm Dr. Glenn. We have now attempted to film this episode three times. Yes. Because I just screwed up last time. And... Three times, the third time is a charm. <laughs> okay, so this is kind of our, our final introduction video so or episode. So episode nine, we did a deep dive into your story, your motivations, and it was really the cost of staying in an unhealthy or a toxic environment. This episode, episode 10, is my backstory and the cost of staying in a toxic relationship. The goal of both these episodes, there's a few. I mean, number one, I think it's important to evaluate the cost of staying as well as the cost of leaving. Or, And, and it doesn't matter what we're talking about, right? Because I think too often we just focus on the leaving side. We know the cost on that side and we overvalue where we are now. You said the same thing. No, I agree. Like, you know, we overvalue staying in this box that we consider to be safe when in truth, it's the most unsafe thing to continue to stay in. Yeah. It's known though. So it's kind of safe in that aspect, right? It's, it's yeah. troubles that we know. It's similar. So then since it's similar, that means that it's safe, but Correct. it really isn't. Right. And I guess, so part of this is kind of explaining and, and showing you guys a very real examples in both cases of the cost of staying essentially. And the other side of this is to show our drive and kind of why behind this entire platform, because we have been through this clinical experience, you from academic to clinical to then being on the other side of it, me from this side of kind of just practicality, I have these issues and I'm going through this clinical therapy and support while I'm reading and learning about it at the same time and realizing a lot of these people don't know what they're talking about and none of it is helping. So there's that side of it too, where we can kind of explain and show what is the motivation behind creating 12 week relationships. And hopefully, you know, when it comes to your own decisions and whatever those might be, um, you guys can make those decisions a bit quicker than we did for us. It took a decade for you, for me, it took, you know, a decade and a half. So yeah, learn yeah. from the both of us. I feel like I'm just talking right now to delay the inevitable. Because you're about to dive into. I'm, I'm this not going to lie. It feels better knowing that we're shooting this episode. It's about you. And then the deep dive is on you. It's much more relaxing, man. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. I liked being on the other side a little bit more when the iPad was on my lap and I was going through your timeline. Yeah, I remember because there was like a direct focus. See, I feel more focused when you're the kind of the interviewer. And then now it's kind of like it's reverse. So I'm more comfortable right now. Awesome. I like my side. I, I you like to listen to everything. Anthony's got the best seat <laughs> He's in the got, house. Exactly. <laughs> Well, the funny thing is we we recorded these episodes twice, actually. Well, this is the second time. Uh, but 
the first time we did it, we kind of just both talked through it. And Anthony was like, dude, without timelines, that was really difficult to follow. And it's difficult because I don't necessarily think of this entire timeline. And for the most part, I've moved past most of this. And so have you. So trying to piece it together in a way that makes cohesive sense is not easy. Yeah, I feel like the the first time we filmed, it was more about us. Like mm-hmm. that's what it felt like for me. It was a cathartic experience, and then now it's about kind of sharing it. Yeah, and you know, being able to share it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So here we are. Okay, can I give a disclaimer? Yes, please. I'm gonna speak as if my children are listening to this because I do believe that they are, or one day will be. So when it comes to names, when it comes to specific details, when it comes to all that kind of stuff, I'd like to keep it a little bit more on the vague side. I'm going to use a fake name for my ex. Why don't we call her um, Susie? Got it. Okay. So that way I don't have to keep saying my ex over and over. Yes. And I want to present just the facts. I think too often, you know, I don't want this to be muddied up with emotion or anything like that. I've moved past all of this stuff um, I am in now a healthy relationship and we have a wonderful home. And and so I want everybody to kind of realize that while you're in these moments, there is a another side to it that you perhaps can't see right now. And all the decisions can sound like you're giving up everything. I mean, that certainly was the case on your side too, right? Yeah, it felt like at the, at the moment that every, I was losing everything. But in truth, you know, I was gaining so much more. Correct. So it's easy to see that now on the other side, but it's not when you're stuck in it. So I'm going to speak from that side of it, giving kind of just the facts of everything. I'm going to keep it rather simple. You got it. But at the same time, I will be an open book. So You got it. So, I mean, my, mine was more on the workplace, the toxicity in the workplace. Yours is specifically in your previous marriage. Correct. 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 So let's kind of, let's kind of go back. So we're going to go to younger pie. So oh. let's. Yeah, so like in the 1990s, you grew up in Utah. <laughs> Utah of all places. I was one of, at the time, very few brown people. <laughs> one of, one of I think like, I don't know, I, I think I'd met three Iranians in my entire youth in wow. Utah. But I, I'm sure there are more there now, but there were not back then. Was that a place where like Iranians went? Like, you know, like LA, K-Town, a lot of Koreans no. went there. It's like, okay, so it's no. just... Okay. It was, in fact, every Iranian that, you know, I met when they asked, you live in Utah. It would be like, why? Why do you live in Utah? Was, <laughs> so my dad is an engineer and he got a, well, he was looking for work. We were actually in California. And at the time, Utah was kind of booming. It was, it was growing very rapidly. So there's a lot of good positions for a civil engineer. So really, we moved there for my father. And I'm, I'm the son of a single parent. So my dad... Um, yeah, single parent brought me over from Iran when I was two years old and then kind of began just raising me on his own while working full time. What was that experience like being one of the few Iranian kids in a Mormon environment? I didn't enjoy it. <laughs> I mean, it, it wasn't fun. Yeah. I don't, I think when I was younger, it was, uh, it wasn't too bad because it was more so I was just different. When the Gulf War began, then I wasn't just different. I was kind of the enemy. And that's when most of the really outright discriminative discrimination and racism kind of began. And, and it began with like a lot of like hate crimes and things like that against me and our family. And oh, so you're specifically targeted. Oh, yeah. Like they neighborhood kids would vandalize our homes on, on a regular basis. Um, one point they came and and uh, I mean, 
almost feel like you have to say the word to make it effective. But at the same time, it's like, I don't want to say, I don't like the term, but they wrote sand and word on our yeah. car with caulking glue. Uh, so white glue on, like on the side of the car. Um, they wrote, go home, go home terrorists, you know, like that, that was a normal thing. One point they put hoses into our basement from our own like water and turned it on and flooded the basement of our home. Oh my God. Uh, this was like 91. So you're 11 or so at the time. Right? This was starting to happen. And I was like, yeah, yeah. Around that time, like between 11 and 15, 10 to 15 was when most of this stuff was happening, uh, at junior high. So I had a, I went to a school that was further away because my dad thought it was a better school. It would drop me off each day. My dad would take me in the mornings and the bus would actually drop me off about three miles from my home. So every day I would walk home three miles from the bus stop. Not, not terrible. I'm sure people have had longer walks, but on this walk, most of the kids that were the bullies were on that same bus ride. So when we get out of the bus, it's like fend for yourselves, oh, man. run for your life kind of on a daily basis. So every single day was that um, for three years of junior high. Oh my God. So literally when you got off the bus, like you had to be afraid of being attacked. Yeah. I would try to run ahead. Some days like the kids would run and catch up. Some days I wouldn't run ahead and I would get beat up, you know, so it was, it was constant. Some days it was just, you know, making fun of me from the other side of the street with their buddies doing so that kind of stuff. How are you dealing with all that as a kid? I don't, as a kid, I didn't think it was unusual because it was the norm for me. So I didn't learn what that was probably until I was a bit older, 17, 18 years old when I started to kind of wake up to it. But as a kid, you just want to make whatever decisions you can to fit in better, to be invisible, to, you know, not get noticed. But I'm sure like that took a toll at school, right? Like yes. how were you doing in school during that time? Well, I also have ADHD, so I don't know what mixture of what, you know, but I'm not doing great at school. Uh, it's hard for me to focus. I'm definitely more worried about all the kids and their perception of me and who's going to try to jump me and, and beat me up than anything else. And I had a few, what I considered actual friends. Did um, you, so you had a social circle though. Yeah. A very small social, social circle of, of people that were mostly kind of like me, like outcasts mm -hmm. in some way or another. They weren't necessarily, you know, some of them were, were immigrants, but others were just not popular. So you're going through all of this discrimination running when you get off the bus Mm -hmm. trying to figure life out you're struggling and then your dad also remarries during this time period as well mm -hmm. when i'm 14 or 15 he remarried what, what was that experience like for you because that's like an immediate family situation at that point because it was just you and your dad before that yeah it was and, and he would date and stuff and so i would you know get to meet and get to know his girlfriends and whatnot um it was interesting i mean i was very happy to finally have a mother um but yeah, it was, it was also difficult because I, I didn't really know what that relationship dynamic was between mother and son. And it was a lot of like new things to kind of figure out, you know. Do you feel comfortable? Is it, com is it okay to ask like, what happened with your biological mother? Yeah, she abandoned me actually uh, on my dad's doorstep when she had basically fought to get custody of me and then did. And then she got me really sick to the point of uh, dying oh and then God. dropped me off near dead on my dad's doorstep. And then I was in a coma in the, in the hospital basically for a month or so. My dad got awarded custody and then he brought me to the States and I haven't, I haven't heard from, I, I did hear from her when I became successful 
and in, in business when I was about 34, 35 years old, she actually reached out at that point. But until then, there was no contact. There was no contact. Wow, so you never really had like a mother figure in your life at that time at all? No, no. So you remarried. So you, the, the, the stepmom, what was she like? Was she a nice stepmother? Yeah, she was great. I mean, I call her my mom because for all intents, she is my mom. Uh, she, she's fantastic and, and, and I love her. So you're in this environment where like it's highly volatile, discriminatory, it's Mormon. Mm-hmm. So what was your belief in terms of the Mormon religion at that time? My belief was just I wanted to be part of it because I think that was one way to get them to stop. If I could blend in better and I could be part of it. And I and I actually did get baptized when I was 16. My dad, I, I wanted to get baptized when I was younger. My dad felt like it was, you know, when I was 9, 10 years old, that was when I first really wanted to join. And he said, you're too young to kind of make that decision. But, you know, when you're older... You know, if you want to, you can. And when I was 15 or 16, he allowed me to start, you know, taking the lessons and actually get baptized. Uh, so I did. But I think while that decision led to a lot of positive things, I think the majority of why I made that decision was to better fit in. How much, like, at your core did you believe in what they were teaching, though? I, I, I like religion. So I had actually as nerdy as it might be, I'd learned quite a bit about different religions and I'd actually gone to Catholic church and I had friends that were Baptist. And so I I went and I did feel like, you know, it had a lot of really great things that I loved. I loved the focus on family and I love the focus. That's the the weird thing. People ask me that. uh, And and I kind of say that, you know, regardless of what religion you ask me, I don't necessarily believe the, the fantasy of it, you know, the what I believe about it is are there principles and things that you can take into your daily life that would make your life better so does it have to be literally correct for me to believe no it just needs to have pieces that I like so at that point when I started learning about that the the Mormon church there was also a lot of aspects that I really loved mm-hmm. I liked that church was kind of quiet and meditative I liked that you know we would go and listen to talks I liked that the the members would give the talks because it made them learn um, I, I like the, the, the family focus of the, of the church. And there were all these positive things that, you know, I, I could say, I believe whatever is true and, and be okay with it because all these positive things were in my life, but I never needed it to be literal. But it gave you some sense of solace in terms of like where to go and what to believe in. Yeah. Got it. For sure. Because you later, like, you know, how does it work like how does missionary work was it during college your first year because you know after that like you you're struggling you graduate and then you go to college right i had no aspiration to go to college so when i graduated from high school my i told my dad i was like dad all i gotta do is get my mcse that's like a microsoft certified system engineer i don't even know if that exists anymore i was like i'm just gonna get an mcse and be a technician for the rest of my life that's all i need to do He's like, you don't want to do anything else? I'm like, nope. That's it. Get my 40K a year and I'm good. <laughs> I had no ambition, no nothing, no drive. Um, and and honestly, I didn't have the grades to back up college either. So it, it wasn't like I could go to any university or anything like that. Actually, funny story. I had a close connection to the president of BYU. And that person wrote me a personalized letter of why I should be accepted to BYU. And the oh, president wow. still said no. <laughs> BYU's like it's not enough. Oh, wow, 
That's so, a high standard. Of the, wow. Yeah. Yeah. My, my grades weren't good. But yeah, I had no aspiration or goal or anything. So for my father, uh, you asked, what, what do you do when you go on a mission? Well, when you're 19, you can choose whether or not you want to go on a mission. And you serve basically this two-year volunteer period. If, if you're a woman, it's 18 months, I believe. And this is, again, kind of some old knowledge because maybe things are different now. Uh, I haven't I haven't been in that world for several years, but yeah, it's it's encouraged to go on a mission, but it's not you know, it's not mandated. But at the same time, I would almost argue that it is because if all of your friends are going, you kind of feel the need to go. So it's culturally kind of, if you want to again kind of fit in, if you want to impress people culturally in this environment, you you need to go on a mission. But it's also a big commitment. Like even besides the cultural pressures to commit those two years, sure. that's a personal commitment to do so. Sure. And, but it also came down to my dad. For him, it was like, you either go into the military or you go on a mission. He's not even Mormon. He's Muslim. But for him, it was, uh, he's not practicing Muslim. He's not practicing anything, but he came from that environment. So for him to be like supportive of it was kind of gives you a little bit of an idea that I was not put together when I was 17, 18. Yeah. Between the two choices, I'd rather just do the mission too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that makes more sense. But you're, you're going on a mission. This is like 1999, right? So you go to, is it Vancouver, Canada? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you're there for two years? Yeah. For two years, I was, I was asked to speak Cantonese and got later switched to Mandarin speaking. What do you do on missions? Like you're basically serving, like what, what happens during this time? I mean, you're basically just, you're on a very regimented schedule. So every day we would get up at like six, you'd have like, you know, studying and breakfast all the way up to like probably eight thirty nine. Then you go out the door um, and, and you do different things. So it's one part of your, of this mission, this is, is service work, right? So you're supposed to find people that need support in whatever way can be members, could be non-members um, community, but finding people that need help and, and being of service. And the other side of that is proselytizing. So you're, in essence, selling religion. You're, you're going from door to door. You're trying to meet people in different ways and trying to share the gospel, the, the knowledge that you have. So that is what you do. And then you take your break at dinner and you go back and you continue. And when you find people that are interested, you sit down and you have meetings with them. So usually at night times, we would do these meetings. We call them discussions. You sit down and have conversations just like this where we would talk about religion and the goal of which is to convert people to being Mormon. And then, uh, yeah, eight o'clock you get home and you wind down nine o'clock. You're supposed to be getting ready if not in bed and do it all over again. So it's really regimented. Yeah. You don't have days off. You get half a day off on a Wednesday, but that's it. You're working seven days a week. I mean, Sunday, like they, they say it's the Sabbath that it's your day off, but it's really not. It's one of the most busy days because you're going from, one church to the next, you're meeting with people, you're, you know, you're constantly moving. Is that something that you're enjoying at this time? I loved it. I, you know, a lot of people, I, I think there's a lot of missionaries that have positive experiences. There are also a lot that have negative experiences. A lot of my friends had really bad experiences on their mission. And for me, it was the best two years of my life until that point. I mean, not only I had these goals, you, you know, before the mission, I, I couldn't, I had a hard time learning anything. I thought I was dumb. My dad thought I needed to be in like remedial education. Um, most of my friends thought that I was disabled and like had learning, you know, disabilities. And so I didn't have any belief that I could learn really anything beyond maybe being a computer technician. That's part of 
kind of why I didn't have any aspirations. But when I went on the mission and I was asked to speak Cantonese, it gave me this like courage uh, where I thought, you know, if, if God wants me to do this, then I'm going to do it. I, I can do it. And at one point I even told my best friend, who's was like, I'm really worried that you're, you're going to learn Cantonese because that's the second hardest language in the world. He'd look it up. He was concerned. And I was like, at one point I got so tired of people telling me how worried they were because it wasn't just him, but I, I, I said it to him. But everybody was coming up to me saying how worried they were that I was going to have to learn Cantonese. So I was fed up. And when my best friend said it to me, I go, you know, you believe in God, the, the same supposed God that I do, right? And he's like, yeah. I go, okay. Do you think that my calling is a mistake? And he goes, no. I go, so you believe that I'm supposed to do this, right? Yeah. Don't you think that he'd make a way for me to do this? Yeah, I guess so. All right, stop worrying about it. It's kind of annoying. And so when I went on my mission, I, I started learning and I started to come up with, hey, if I actually try to understand the why behind each of these things, then maybe it'll be a little bit different. And it was. So I would ask, why do we do things this way? Why is this word that way? Why is it written this way? These Chinese words are made up of, of individual components called bushos. And each one of them has a, a meaning. And I started asking, people would be like, just memorize the character. No, tell me what the individual symbols in that character mean. And when I'd learn those individual symbols, I'd be like, oh, so to eat or fan has a rice symbol in it. Fan means like, like chifan means to eat food, right? To eat dinner. So the first part is eat. And there's actually a mouth symbol in one of the bushos. The second part has a field because it's for rice. And you're saying the term rice and the rice is actually denoted in parts of that symbol. And then once I learned it that way, I never had to ask again. And so I started approaching everything with that why. And I started working hard at learning. And six months in, I could speak Cantonese with very little accent. A year in, I could fool people to thinking I grew up in Hong Kong. So you were fluent like in a year. In a year. And then, uh, then I got asked to add Mandarin to the plate. And so I did. And so it was this amazing two years of learning. And for the first time, I like fit in. I could go to places and I could speak Cantonese or Mandarin. And crowds would form around me just to listen to me speak. What is this brown guy doing speaking perfect Chinese? This is wild. And I would use it to create conversations and to talk about what I'm there doing, you know, being a missionary. And, and I had the respect of everybody. Like everyone at the church that we went to, they would talk about how good my language skills were and how smart I was. And it, was, it blew me away. It was the first time in my life that I felt like I, I even got almost like an identity crisis where I would tell missionaries and everybody around me, I'm more Chinese than anything. Yeah, because you're getting accepted. Yeah. And it was also the birthing of like you starting frameworks, right? Because your whole life Correct. and business is about frameworks. So being in this structured environment on the missions and then learning Cantonese and Mandarin, that was you starting to understand how to conceptualize and build frameworks for yourself. That was the very beginning of it. And it yeah. was actually the first subject that I created books on. So I created books on learning Cantonese and Mandarin. And also I think at that age, that structured environment was healthy for you because you were looking for some sense of structure at that time. For sure. Yeah. For sure. From, you know, my childhood being the the son of a, a father who is not married and is an immigrant and is putting his own, I, I was left to do my own thing most of the time in the home. I'm an only child too. So there was no structure. There was no nothing. It was just wake up, do whatever, go to bed whenever, and no, really no supervision in between. And then during this time, this is when you met Susie. 
Susie was a, yes, she was a new member uh, that was baptized while I was on my mission. Now, as a missionary, you're not allowed to date. So I took all the rules very seriously. Uh, most missionaries do. They're really good. So you don't even, you know, consider that as an option. But as as uh, a new member, oftentimes they help the missionaries to kind of go to meetings and talk about their experience and things like that. So she would go with us and we just developed a, a good friendship over probably the last year of while I was out there. When I got back home, we stayed in touch and then two of the people that I was teaching decided to get baptized. So I said, if you guys do get baptized, I'll come back up. I went back up for this two week trip to kind of just visit and talk and, and see what you don't get a chance to explore as a missionary. You're working the whole time. So you get, you know, at most two, three hours here and there on a, on one of your days off to go to one of the sites and visit what Vancouver's actually like. So I wanted to go for a vacation during that vacation and visiting. That's when Susie and I decided to date. That's also when we got engaged within that two weeks. So I was, I was like maybe a month and a half after the mission. I went gone up for that trip and then we were engaged within the two weeks. And how much did you guys know each other at that time? Not at all. Not at all. But I mean, that also factors into, you know, after you serve a mission, the next goal you're given is to marry. That was literally a goal that my mission president gave me. And don't get me wrong. I, I love my mission president to death. He's an incredible person. But, you know, I think a lot of people in the church, they kind of worry or in any any church after this mission that you go home and you. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Sort of, you know, start dating, having sex, fall away from the church. They, they worry about that. So, it's again, it's not part of the letter of the law to, to go home and marry, but it's part of the culture of it. It's part of like, this is the next thing that you're given to do. So I approach it like any other goal. Susie, when we first started dating, it was what I had built up in my mind was incredible because here was Susie. She speaks Cantonese and Mandarin and she's ambitious to not only learn English, but to become a lawyer, to do all these like crazy things. And so am I. I love Cantonese and Mandarin. I love Chinese culture and I'm ambitious to like, I want to not only continue studying them, but maybe I want to get a law degree too. And maybe I want to do international law, but I want to dating her was like taking the best of these two years and bringing it into my life in a way that would forever be a part of my life. So it was, there was a lot of, you know, romance in the idea that I could bring the best two years of my life in home and make it a part of everything that I am. But it, and she shares the same value. At least I believed she shares the same values, the same goals. We have so much in common, but I saw what I wanted to see. I see. But spiritually too, like you went from this experience of like 
having an identity and being like respected like it almost felt like god was ordaining this almost oh it, 1000 percent. yeah we we, we had actually <laughs> this is so funny so we messed around a little bit like every if if any young mormon person is actually honest i, I think most of them will admit that when they're young high school whatever you know, you're going to make out, you're going to fool around. I, I hate that the, the, the technical word that they use is heavy petting. Yeah. Have you guys ever heard that word before? Heavy petting? Yes. Is that a typical religious word? Okay. But yeah, yeah. when you're heavy petting, you're basically, it's basically dry sex, dry yes. humping, whatever. Yes. But yeah, heavy Third petting. Piece. It sounds like what you should be doing with a dog, but yeah. yeah. So we had just, you know, essentially dry humped or whatever. And I felt really guilty about it. And so I thought, you know, Susie, let's pray about this. And if this is right, let's get married. And we did. And again, like I'm so young at this time, like I, I finished this prayer and I feel what we would call the spirit, this tingling sensation, this like, this has got to be right. Now, I don't know enough psychology or enough anything to, to know that maybe I'm making myself feel that way. Maybe I'm just horny. I, like, I don't know. Like, it could be a number of things, right? But but I believe in that, you know, so much that that becomes the driving force. This is right. Susie, you feel it too? Yeah, I feel it. This is right. Now, mind you, since that point in my life, I've felt the spirit in many, many different places. <laughs> Pretty much every Avengers movie, I feel the spirit. You know, it's a spiritual experience. You, you, Anthony, you tell me when Captain America caught that hammer and you were like, he is worthy. And then he says, as she, like Avengers assemble. Did you not get, you felt the spirit. I did. Yeah. You got the tingles, <laughs> but it's funny. But like at the same time, when I think about it, it's the exact same feeling. Anything that gets you excited, that that is wholesome, that you believe is just incredible. You get that feeling, that rush. And uh, you can make yourself feel that way pretty easily. And you can convince yourself. Interestingly, I had several people tell me this up until the point that we got married. Several of my Mormon friends would say like, dude, you got this confused. But I believed so wholeheartedly in that. So they're telling you like you're just horny? Yeah, I had my, my dad. <laughs> true story. I tell my dad that I'm engaged. And he goes, son, pack your shit right now i'm gonna take you to vegas and you're gonna fuck a prostitute and i was like dad i just got home from a mission how dare you say anything like that but he knew he knew that it's like my son has not even seen anything and he's making this decision based on you know but that was his his mindset and i, and I of course this is why i don't like you know when god is the reason or the answer to something i don't like it anymore uh not because i don't believe in a higher power i do believe that god whoever this you know person is he or she i, I believe that there is purpose in believing in, in a higher power that we're here for a reason i still believe those things mm -hmm. but i will never again in my life say that the reason for something is god and and the reason why is because as soon as you actually believe that you pass a point of like fanaticism and, well, and it's the same in my opinion for me it was driving me to get married regardless of signs and whatnot but in my opinion it's the same fanaticism that leads a person to go and bomb a building it's just a different level of 
you know, teaching and extremism along the way. Yeah. But it's the exact same notion that if I believe that this is from God, this has to be right. And there's no questioning of it. And how do you argue against that? You can't. There is you no know? argument. Like, how do you convince the person otherwise? It's God. God told me. Yeah. Okay. As right. soon as somebody says that, like, I've been in, in counseling sessions helping people where one couple says, God told me this is the right way. Where do you go from there? Yeah. You're the one that has like the legitimate experience. Where do you, where do you go from there? But you would basically go, well, maybe God's speaking to you in another way. What are some other alternatives? But yeah, if they're very like set, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's very hard to convince people otherwise. Yeah. You know, and I think like there's a fine line between selfish motives and then motives that genuinely will help others. Correct. Yeah. But no, I, I totally get what you're saying. So, so yeah, we're engaged and you're extremely horny at this point. Yeah, yeah, very yeah. horny. Yeah. You're feeling that hammer like the Marvel <laughs> Comics movie, right? A very little hammer. Um, um and then you guys get married. Yeah, so we basically, you know, finished dating long distance six months and eventually at the end of it, uh Susie I brought her to Utah under a fiance visa and then we got married when I was 22. And then you mentioned before, like there were some like red flags or you guys had conversations like maybe this isn't going to work out, even though it was this kind of holy experience prior. Yeah, there was, that's the crazy part about all this is that there, there were plenty of red flags. Like when, when I said I really wanted to be part of Chinese culture, that this is who I am. I demonstrated through action, the way that I would study, the way that I would read, the way that I would communicate with her family. And when I took a trip to, we took a trip to China before the wedding and uh, I loved everyone in her family. It wasn't that they didn't say offensive things that they weren't annoying, that they would, didn't do like their family, right? So they're going to do and ask all sorts of things. Um, they would, you know, call me a foreigner. They would call me whatever. Like it doesn't even feel like racism because it's like jokes right they're they're just having fun with everything and we would joke around and, and i was i was there but then i would notice in my environments that susie would not be present that her when she said that she was ambitious and she wanted to study english and that she wanted to do those things it didn't show in the actions and then she started having issues with my parents just before we got married um and we we questioned it susie and i actually talked about it should we get married? Is this right? Probably two times before the actual wedding date. And I remember both times just like leaning into that. But we prayed about this. We know. Yeah. And I also prayed about going on a mission. And that was an incredible experience. So this one had to be just like that. It's like a challenge of your faith. Yeah. Yeah. So we, yeah, we, we ended up getting married. And my mission president was the person that married us. And then when you got married, there was an incident that took place during the, the, the night, day. the night of. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> this is, it's funny cause I've been in the wedding world now and now I have a clear picture of just how kind of sad my wedding was from the standpoint of like, you know, today I'm photographing these multi-million dollar weddings. And, uh, back then this was like a $500 wedding in like a church reception hall, like a gymnasium, <laughs> um, Everyone was bringing, it was like a potluck, you know, wedding reception. Anyway, I'd, I'd never been to a wedding. I don't know what you're supposed to do. So it just looked like hanging out with friends and people coming up and congratulating us and fine, whatever. One of my close friends, again, I, I would say that I had two of these that were like little sisters and this was one of them. 
she went outside crying and I noticed and I went to console her for 10, 15 minutes and I found out that, you know, other missionaries were making fun of her because she was dating somebody who was also a missionary in that area. So they're kind of teasing her that this is just like Pi and Susie, you guys are going to get married and all this kind of stuff. So I kind of consoled her and comforted her and just said, don't worry, like, don't listen to what anyone says. Like, they're going to always talk and do their thing, but you just do you. And 10, 15 minutes later, I come back inside and Susie's livid, upset, and I, I don't know why. And I would find out later that night, later the next weeks, you know, that this was very traumatizing to her, that I left her alone. And to her, she internalized it like, I don't love her because I left her on the night of our wedding. And that's what I would hear nonstop. And even though I would apologize, and even though it, it would become one of those pieces of resentment that would get reused over and over in arguments. That's, yeah, that just went on for the duration of your, your marriage. Yeah. And then like one thing that was clear during this time is you were really trying to get involved in her world, but she made no attempt to counterbalance and be a part of your world at all. Yeah, I don't know if it was no attempt. I think in her mind, she was trying hard. I just think we had different views of what that means. Like what, what does it mean to try hard? You know, when my parents did one thing that was offensive to her, that was permission to not, you know, try anymore. And I think she also maybe had, I also wonder if like a big part of it was like the cultural shock. You know, she, in Vancouver, you could be, you could, you're amongst, you know, all sorts of immigrants and people from everywhere. It's, it's very cultural. And so if you wanted to only speak Cantonese or only speak Mandarin or only speak, you know, Hindi or, uh, you, you could find communities to fit into to do that. In Utah, you pretty much have to speak English. There's no skirting it. Uh, so I, I think there was a, a really strong element of culture shock there that she couldn't communicate the way that she wanted to, so she just didn't try or stopped. Um, and then these things would happen, and they would give her reasons not to. So, for example, uh, shortly after we got there, she had gotten a job uh, doing checkout at a grocery store. My mother came through the line just to say hi. And my mom is just visiting. She doesn't know the rules, but you know, Susie does. And the rule is that you cannot check out a family member. Susie doesn't know what to say or do. Doesn't say anything. Just ignores my mom as my mom comes through the line, pays for her thing. My mom's talking to Susie. What are you guys doing tonight? You know, do you guys want to do something like this kind of stuff? Susie doesn't say anything. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. My mom leaves crying. 
because she thinks that Susie just hates her and ignored her this whole time. She tells my dad, my dad tells me. And then I take this role of the trying to be a counselor, a healthy triangulator in this, which was the worst thing ever. (laughs) But that was when it got back to me, then Susie got upset. Why would your mom say this? She doesn't, you know, I can't check her out because she's family, but I did it anyway. And I would say, but you know, like there was a moment there where you could have just said, mom, I can't check you out. This person can. And then you could take a five minute break or, or say, mom, I can't take a break or, you know, anything like that. Something. Something. Yeah. And then it would be my fault because I didn't support her. And it would go back to the wedding night. This is just like our wedding night where you left me and you support everybody but me. And uh, it would go round and round in circles. But that that instance would be one that would get her to a point where you go, well, I'm not just going to I'm not going to try anymore with your parents. But this is also the beginning and the foundation of like a emotionally abusive relationship. Right? Yeah, because but you're being scapegoated and blamed for everything. And then there's no attempt to meet your needs whatsoever. It's just her world or and that's it. Yeah. And I didn't necessarily see it that way at the time. Like now, again, it's very easy to point out. But at the time, it didn't feel that way. And uh, I also think that I brought a lot of my emotional baggage. I, I brought every bit of my emotional baggage into it. I mean, I remember early on arguments would be like, I would threaten divorce. Like maybe this just isn't working out. Maybe we shouldn't be doing this anymore. And she would threaten divorce. And so there was this emotional manipulation game going back and forth. Usually mine would be on the side of like, there's this issue and I'd want her to do what in my mind is the healthy thing. So I would try to manipulate her to do those things. You know, everything would just be fine if you would do this, you know, if you could do. So there was an element of me trying to change this person, trying to shape her. And that was, that was wrong of me. I, I honestly, a lot of these issues, I didn't even know were issues because growing up, my dad would fight with girlfriends. He would fight with, you know, fiancés. He would fight with my mother, the the person that he married when I was 14, 15. They had a very tumultuous first, you know, few years of their marriage. And now they've kind of figured things out and they got to a place where they could, they could function, be healthy. Um, but fighting was normal. Arguing was normal. So all the things that we were doing to me just fit the, fit the mold. It was familiar in terms of what you knew. Yeah. I, I thought this was healthy. I thought this is just what people do. Yeah. And how old are you guys at this time? Mm, 23, 24. Yeah. And that, that's like the age of development where you're trying to figure out who you are as a person. That's why the rate of divorce is the highest mm. from like 22 to 28. Yeah. Because even if you do like are healthy, you're trying to figure things out. How can you figure out how to be with someone at that time? Yeah. Neither of us. Yeah, and that. religion and all the other thing, components that were going on, cultural issues. Like it was just, it was stacking the deck in terms of your relationship. Yeah. Eventually I, I did convince her to, you know, go to school go with to me. School. So we were both at the University of Utah. Um, we both ended up graduating with our bachelor's degrees. Yeah, it was a, it was a very interesting time as, as I would introduce her to my friends one by one she would kind of close off each of those relationships very quickly just kind of ignoring my friends would kind of say it doesn't seem like she likes us and i say no it's not that she's just shy she's just quiet she's just so i kind of had no choice but to sort of start separating at least in my mind where i would hang out with my friends and my family in my time and then 
on some, you know, I kind of treated my, my wife like one of those people that I would spend time with. So I would just stay away from the house a lot. I had every excuse to find as many jobs as I could. And when I wasn't working, I was spending time with my friends. I would, I found one job that was down like 45 minutes away just so I could drive there, work all day, be close to friends. When I get off work, I would go and make music with them. And, uh, I'm sure my friends all found that very strange how much time I was spending away from home, <laughs> but that was my way of coping. And then okay. when we, when I was home and when I was with Susie, the only friends we could have were her friends. We, we started going to a Chinese speaking church. Um, the friends that we did meet were couples that were, uh, most of them were interracial. Most of them spoke both Cantonese or Mandarin, one or the other. And so when we do social things, it was in her world. Yeah, and, and once again, this is the foundation of kind of like an emotionally abusive relationship. Isolating from you from your friends, everything has to be on her terms, high expectations for you, low expectations for her. Like all these dynamics are in play at this point. Sure. Yeah, and so you guys go to school and then you graduate. Yeah, she ends up studying English and communication, which would be something that I would again hear about. She came to me and said, you know, I'm, I'm going to study English communication. What do you think? And I said, that's great. That'd be fantastic. That'll be a great lead in, you know, to doing law if you want to do that. Uh, and just helping us to, you know, communicate better. And so I supported it. And then she was in it not very long before kind of getting overwhelmed and drained. And I, I would do my best to help with her homework and to help with assignments and things. Yeah. And yeah, she, she did get a degree. I think a lot of her professors, uh, some of them I knew, I think a lot of them felt bad too. Like maybe she's culturally in shock and not able to learn all the concepts, but we'll help her get a passing grade. Because if you, if you were to compare her grade, like she was getting B's on things, but a native, you know, speaker of English was getting a C or a D on the, on a better quality of work. Uh, so I think there was quite a bit of help that was offered and eventually she graduated um, so did I. And I graduated six months early. I headed off to, uh, I graduated in, in with a bachelor's degree in accounting and also Chinese linguistics. And I went up to Ernst and Young and began doing accounting, uh, six months before she finished. So she came out six months after. And what was that experience like for you being away from her? You know, I know it's only for six months, but what was that like for you starting a new job? It was interesting because we, you know, I felt normal and healthy again and I didn't know what it was about. I almost felt guilty about it where when I was there, it was, I was happy each day. I was happy and having fun and, and just living. And, uh, I thought it was very strange that I didn't have that when I was near her. So when she arrived, it was a very big contrast. We kind of fought a lot like the early years we, we'd been married now at this point, like four and a half years, maybe yeah, four and a half years. So we were fighting just like that first year again. I thought, okay, this just must be because we've spent time apart or whatnot. And, uh, we eventually got an apartment. She had a struggle finding a job. And, uh, that, that was the moment where it was now my fault that she was, she studied English and communication. Why didn't you encourage me to do something else? Why, why didn't you tell me to study business or something that would have been more, I can't even find a job now. And, uh, we both had different memories of it. I would say like, you know, you wanted to study English. I just supported it. 
well, you should have told me. I go, but you made that decision. I, I just wanted to support you for, and each of those conversations would eventually go around that I would start apologizing almost throughout our entire marriage. Even the problems that I would bring up, the only way to resolve them was for me to apologize. And, but again, there's a lot of beautiful social programming and cliches to happy wife, happy life. Yeah. 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 Cause so, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. So I kind of, it was always my job to fix it. Even if it was a problem that, you know, she genuinely needed to work on, it was my problem to fix it. And it would always end in that. Whether it was night of the wedding, that issue, the issues with my parents. Oh, one time I, uh, she didn't want to hang out with my parents. So one time I went to lunch with my family by myself and she caught us. It was the most <laughs> awkward moment. It felt like I was cheating, <laughs> but she was so angry. Like we're here eating lunch without her. And, uh, I didn't know what to do. But when I think back, I was like, it literally felt like I had cheated on my wife. But in reality, she didn't want to spend time with them and they had their issues with her. And so I just wanted to see my family. But I would hear about each of these instances. So in each of these cases where something would go wrong, I kind of felt like it was my job to apologize and smooth things over and to make it right and to do my best to not let it happen again. So you're, you're clearly in this kind of toxic relationship. Do you know that you're in a bad relationship at this time? Like, how are you internalizing no. all this? No, I, I, to me, again, it's normal. I don't, yeah, it's normal. You know, my dad would say things like, this is not healthy. But he didn't have a healthy marriage either. So it wasn't like, it wasn't like I was getting signs from places, you know, like this isn't, and to be fair too, I was, I was studying, this is when I started getting very interested when I was 22 ish, I started getting very interested in psychology. So I would be picking up books and I went to counseling. I didn't even mention this. I started counseling a week after we got married. Mm. I was like, there are problems here. I need to fix these. She didn't want to go. So I just went by myself. So I began the process of learning and trying to be my own expert. Um, and it's wild. We, we glanced over several of these things, but six months uh after we got married we still hadn't consummated the marriage hmm. we couldn't like every time we would make out and it would get to that place um susie would stop and get uncomfortable and we, and we couldn't go forward so i started uh one of the informal counselors i met with was my mission president the person that married us and four or five months in he goes elder and this is what you call each other this is my church title elder this is an unhealthy marriage. You need to get divorced. He goes, it's not even a, a divorce. It's an annulment because you guys haven't consummated the marriage yet, but this is not good. I, I told him, president, this is, I, I uprooted her life. I brought her over here. You know, this was in front of God. I prayed about this. This is right. I'm going to make this work. So that's what I believed. But he was the only person that and it was funny because he's the guy that married us <laughs> for a Mormon to say that mm. when I look back on it, because you're supposed to be married in the temple and that's a big deal. Not only that, but he's the one that married us in the temple. So for him to come and say this, that's a big deal. That's a big deal, but it didn't register. And he was probably the only one that gave me, you know, advice from a position of knowing and, and living, you know, a, a healthy life. 
but I was so determined to, to, you know, this is again, my error, my, my mistakes. These are my pieces of ownership of like, I chose it all, you know? Yeah. I mean, what was it? What was he telling you specifically why you should not do this? Did you remember? Yeah, it was that we hadn't consummated the marriage, but I also didn't know why. Cause I, I would ask, you know, Susie and say like, what's going on? And I had read enough at that point to wonder like, is there sexual abuse or trauma in her past? Like, is there something, but I couldn't learn any of the details. And so it was the fact that not only was this happening, but I didn't know why it was happening. And the other issues that I brought to him from week to week. So I was seeing a professional, but I was also seeing him. And so that's where he got to a place where he's like, dude, this is not good. I see. And then so eventually you guys, are, you're working, you're fighting all the time. And then it gets to the point where you guys have a discussion about divorce. Yeah. So now we go, okay, so we leave Utah. We graduated. I think I began at um, Ernst Young around 2009. So all of this stuff was from, no, 2006 was when I started Ernst Young. So all this was from like 2002 to 2006. Got to LA. We got in our own apartment. You know, eventually I helped find her a job. Uh, I helped her get a car because, like, when she arrived, like, I kind of became this problem solver for her. It was almost like a, it was weird. It was a father daughter relationship yeah, more than it was anything else. Husband wife. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I remember the next. There was, it's it's funny. There's always a lot. So to, to like try and think back on now, I, now I know why you I have mean, a hard time remembering these details in your story. Yeah. Like it, there's a lot to go back, but like you guys are talking about discussing divorce and then you guys go see a bishop. Okay. So before right? that, uh, we're on our own in an apartment, she's working and she says she wants to start getting ready for the LSAT. So we buy the books, which are expensive, buy the books, you buy the classes. She does that for four or five months. And I think she's maybe serious about it for the first few weeks or so. But anyway, at night, after after work at night, she would study. And so I would do my own thing. You know, this is about the time where Justin, Chris, and I were thinking of starting up a business. And we were also trying to do our music and, and a band and all this stuff. So we had all these fun extra things that we were doing. So we would continue doing those things. And the reason that, you know, Susie wasn't joining Alon in this was because she was studying for the LSAT. And I would tell them. Well, four or five months in, she tells me, I think it was like five months. She tells me, uh, I actually haven't been studying. I've been going into my room and watching movies or chatting with friends. And I just couldn't tell you before because I figured you'd get upset. And I did get upset. And I was like, yeah. well, of course I'm going to get upset. Like I've been telling all of our friends that you're studying the LSAT because like, like you're, you're affecting our lives, my life. Like you're not with me anywhere. You're not present physically and you know emotionally you're not here and she said well this is your fault because i wouldn't have felt the need to do that if you didn't tell your friends and i go well i told my friends because i was proud and because i'm explaining why you're not there and it became another well you shouldn't have done that the whole reason why i did this was because you did that and i started apologizing for that too but that was when divorce came back up so that was the beginning of like kind of the conversation again and we'd started our businesses and in 2007 yeah 2007 2008 we were getting really serious about like i was i was now i'm i've read enough and i've met with enough counselors and i started getting to a place where i would just ask counselors just tell me what a healthy relationship looks like 
because I don't know. Yeah. I've read all these little books and these things that talk about nuances and things, but I generally just don't know what a relationship, healthy relationship should look like. And nobody can answer that question. Yeah. And you're trying to figure it out. I'm trying to figure it out. And now I'm having serious questions and we're about seven years into the marriage and I go to the bishop and I say, I'm not connecting with my wife. I don't like her. I don't respect her. I don't, there's problems. I, I don't, I don't know how to address this. I don't know how to, the bishop is the ecclesiastical leader for a congregation in the Mormon church. Uh, they're often sought out, you know, when it comes to advice like this, even though they're not trained in any way, shape or form, they're usually business people or, you know, in a completely different profession. But he pulls Susie in and they have a meeting and I'm outside. Then they invite me back in. And the bishop knew that I was, I was working with him on what they, what I'd again been taught was a pornography addiction. Because all my life I was told like, you know, from the point that, uh, Susie and I got married, I had an addiction to pornography and I'd been to the classes. I've been to the places where people stand up and talk about their addictions. And I'm like, I guess I, I'm an addict too. I, I don't feel like I don't really need to leave work to go and masturbate. I don't, I don't feel like I'm, you know, stuck in this and I can't think about anything else. I don't feel like it's changing my life. From time to time, I I miss any form of emotional connection. I feel like some sort of relief is like like it's like stress relief, you know. Sure. But either way, I'm I'm told that I have an addiction, so I go for that. And the bishop knows, and Susie knew. And when they invite me back in, they they both said, uh, "The bishop goes, this is your fault, Elder. You're the one that has the issues here. I met with Susie, and Susie's a a good sister." And you're the one that has the issues. It's your pornography addiction that's preventing all of your connection and all of your issues. And Susie like leans into it. And, and I believe it. Okay. Well, I guess if they're telling me that this is all my fault and the bishop says, you know, the, the reason that you're here right now is because you guys don't have children. You have children. This is going to get better. Now, maybe this is what counselors do too. And this is what's so irritating is that maybe in some cases that, that advice, that, is correct. Maybe it's someone who does actually have an addiction and when they kick it, it fixes it. But then they start applying that advice to everything as if it were it's science. It's the be all end all. Mm -hmm. But addiction means that it's affecting your daily functioning and everyday life, which was not the case for you. Not even close. It would be like a once a week, you know, once a week, twice a week, I'm tired at night. I can't connect with this person that's ne next to me. Like I don't, we had stopped being intimate. Like I don't have any desire to. And that's when it would creep back in. But that's ridiculous. Like all the fighting, the communication issues, is it a, it's a porn addiction that's causing all of it. Yeah. That is ridiculous. But that, it would probably blow your mind how often, that is probably the diagnosis for 99% of these cases. Which is really scary. It's, it's a terrifying thought. But that is probably the... It is most certainly the biggest thought of the reason for why things are happening, why why marriages fail. So much so that that the church is constantly putting out constant guidance on the severity of this problem and how big of an issue this is and how it's wrecking families. And I'm sitting here going, once again, another organization, another certified board, another another place that's sitting here focusing on a symptom of a problem rather than addressing the actual underlying issue and that's what that is uh, and it's not to say that it's not like there is a problem with 
if you are going to pornography to fulfill a connection that you should have with your partner, that's a problem. There's nothing wrong with two people consenting, looking at pornography together. I, I have come to that realization as well. Sure. But for one person to avoid another person and go and seek out porn because that is more gratifying or because they want an emotional connection to something else or whatever it might be, that's an issue. Agreed. But not probably for the reason that people think. It's not the cause of the issue. It's the symptom. It's, it's what's happening. Agreed. And then these closed-minded, simplistic solutions rewards toxic behaviors over actual exploration and trying to figure things out. Correct. Because now seven years in, when the bishop says that, now Susie has another person that has a title and a name to stand behind them. Validating that you are to the say problem. That, yes, I'm the problem. I told you. So we go back and we start trying to have kids and we do. We have two kids and they are the not only the best thing that we ever did but the only positive memory i have from our entire 14 years yeah and you mentioned that a lot like when you think back to your marriage with her with susie you don't really have really any happy moments yeah that 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 one was a wild one for me to grasp myself because for the longest time i thought it was my anger you know i i i I work with individuals as well and i've done my research and so i see people and i've read the research and the books that talk about you know when you're in that place all you tend to see is the 10 percent that's missing and you you dial in on it it's like wearing a negative pair of you know goggles where you see the world in a certain way tinted everything's tinted so i for the longest time i felt like I can't identify anything happy, any any good memories from my marriage, but that's just the tinting of my goggles. I'm angry. And when I resolved all this and the anger left, I was left with, I still can't remember a single positive memory with, and that's not to say that I didn't have positive memories. It's to say that when I say that, I mean, Susie was there, she was present, when I was having a great experience with her family, when I was having a great experience with her friends, when I was having a great experience with my friends, with my family, there was many instances where Susie was present, but I don't have a single experience that was positive because Susie was present because of that person. It was just, she was, there. she was there. And then like in these toxic relationships, it's not about happiness. It's just relief. That Correct. nothing bad is happening. Correct. And the, yeah. the two exceptions were when my son and my daughter were born. Yeah. That was a moment where. That was like joyful. It was joyful and genuinely positive. And it was there for both of us. And outside of that, it didn't exist though. So you followed the bishop's advice. You guys have kids, two beautiful kids. And then what happens after that? Does do things improve? Yeah, they did. Things got better, dramatically better. But then I didn't know what that was until you described it. You know, what happened was things got busy. Mm. I mean, you have her, her mother came to help and live with us. And I love her mom. Her mom's fantastic. And uh, I'm working and building a business. And, you know, the kids at home are, are busy and always needing attention. And I was busy. And so I would move from one thing to the next, one fire to the next to, to just put all my time, those things. And I genuinely felt for a good, probably two, three years, 
like that marital device fixed everything. Like, man, all these books and all this stuff and just have I kids. don't need to, to do any of that. Like all the knowledge, it was weird. It was like, all I needed was just to have kids. But I was so busy and just, you know, dealing with everything that I was, as you described it, in my most unhealthy state, running yeah. around, just managing problems, not realizing, not even thinking about it. And each of these problems under the surface are getting bigger. Again, remember like, you know, the snowball effect of had Susie and I decided to call off the wedding, that would have been a tiny life blip. Mm. Had we gotten married and decided to annul it, slightly bigger mistake, but makes sense. Again, not huge. Had we decided later to get divorced, not that big a deal. Now we're seven years, eight years down the road and kids are coming into the picture. Now that decision has much more dramatic consequences. You pass the 10 year mark in a marriage, another dramatic step for more consequences. So I don't again notice the problems for probably three years. Once our second was born and she was about one ish, then things start slowing down and calming a bit. The business is doing well, everything is good. And it was like the water that was covering up all the problems and the jagged surface receded Mm. and everything came out. And only this time it was worse. And then you put like you, this was kind of like raising flags and kind of melting down. What specifically was happening during that time? This is like 2014, 2016 period. Yeah. I mean, I'm starting to realize that I'm closer to my mother-in-law than I am to my wife. And I'm saying like, I'm basically raising the kids with your mom. You're, you're supposed to be studying. She, she did the same thing again with the LSAT. She started to study the CFP. Um, she wanted to be a certified financial planner and then she took the test, didn't pass it. No, no big deal. Do it again. But then she reveals that she wasn't really trying all that hard. She wasn't studying all that much. And I'm like, your mom and I, we're literally taking care of everything so that you can do this. She says she wants to go and try this job. Go, go do it. Find something that you can lean into. And it's one thing after the next thing. And and oftentimes it's church that becomes one of the biggest things. You know, all the volunteer work and they call them callings. You have a volunteer calling. Well, she would treat her callings like they're full-time jobs. Well, I got to go help the sisters. I got to go do this. In reality, she would go and have lunches and she would go and hang out and she would go and spend time. But it's all avoiding what needed to be done at home. And I was talking to my new bishop about it, who was a, a really good person. And uh, I was like, the church has to know that you can't just give these people this outlet to just go and do whatever they want with service because they're using it to avoid the things that like, they, the home needs to come first. Service comes after, but everybody's doing it. The other, if you have problems at home, people would yeah. use the service as this excuse to avoid it. So I would, I would bring up that. That's a big issue. I would say I'm still going to counseling. I'm still, you know, I'm still reading the books. I'm still doing this. Like, let's go together. Counseling doesn't work. I don't, you know, that's not going to help us. Okay. And it would just continue. So I would kind of keep raising my hand and going, this isn't right. So this is going on for like a two year period. And then it says 2017, like you're kind of just like, I've had it at this point. Yeah. So some weird things happened along that, like the last two years, 
I started developing these weird connections to friends, friends who were girls. Um, <laughs> one was very strange. Um, I might, I might glance over that one. Basically just finding myself getting too attached to friends and not realizing what was happening. But one got to the point where, um, it actually led me to realize like, and the weird thing is that we weren't as friends, we weren't talking about anything unusual. It wasn't, you know, I'm talking about my wife and she's talking about her husband. It wasn't any of that stuff. We were just friends and we would have really great conversations. And when something would happen, you know, like that would be the first person I'd think of to say, Hey, you're not going to believe this. And it got to a point where I, I clicked in my head where I go, this is an emotional affair. And I pulled a book up because I had a book on it and there's 10 questions at the beginning of this book. And I'm like, I could check every one of those boxes. So it came to this realization of like, okay, I am missing this big piece in my life and I'm searching and I'm, these friendships keep going this way. It was the second time that it happened. The first time was a weird one. It caught me by surprise because the other person um, was not like <laughs> the other person was not supposed to be sexually attracted. Right. So the other person, it was like a bro. Um, she's a lesbian. So I was like, cool. It's like I can have my lesbian best friend type thing. And then suddenly she at one point goes, I think I'm in love with you. And I'm like, that's impossible. <laughs> You're not supposed to, you know, and, and that's when I like disconnected that one. But the second time it happened, um, we both had recognized it at one point. Uh, so that those things were cropping up and I, I kept going like, why am I, I, how can I not develop this connection? And each time it, I would lean harder into the, the, the marriage, like I'm going to make this work. I'm going to more activities, more time together, more. And the more time I spent with the person, the more I disliked her. So this is where like resentment is really starting to creep in, in the marriage for you. Yeah. So it's shifting from like guilt because everything was like, everything's my fault. And you're always thinking about her first. And then now it's becoming like, man, I'm, I'm getting really sick of this at this point. Yeah. And I was getting physically sick as well. What I didn't realize, I'd even read it in a book too, that you're 35% more likely to get sick when you're in an unhealthy, unhealthy marriage. marriage. Well, I was getting sick constantly. Colds, flus, almost like every other week I would have something. No pie. Everything's fine. This is normal. I don't like my wife, but a lot of people don't like their wives. That's fine. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So you're literally mentally, emotionally, and physically breaking down at this point. Correct. Yeah. So during this time, like you're having struggles in the, in the marriage. Yeah. So 2017, 2017, and then you're reaching out to a friend. Okay. So what that was is this is actually Susie and I are both in Kauai. Okay. So rewind the, Last counselor that I'd met with, I, I started asking that question again. What does a healthy relationship even look like? Well, the last counselor I would meet with individually, he said, I asked that question. I'm like, just tell me well, what kind of relationship, anything, anything, just friendship, partnership, family, anything. Why? Well, that's a complicated question. I go, yeah, everybody that I asked is the exact same thing. Well, I don't know. Well, how do I fix my marriage? And he goes, I don't have the answers you're looking for. I don't know how to help you in your marriage. You've read every book on my shelf. I don't know. And he goes, let me research it. And that was the end of the last session that I had with him. And he never called. 
So I, I leave there and I'm in the mode again, like I'm going to make this work. And the weird thing too is you can see this mode very visibly in people. In that mode, I was constantly talking about what makes a, you know, why our marriage is successful and this is why my partner's awesome. And I was putting it out in the social media as if I was convincing myself. And then I started to realize that later, that that's a pattern that a lot of us fall into. So I'm taking on this role of like, I'm going to make this work. And I'm thinking of like all the things I could potentially do to answer this question for myself. But I'm also thinking, you know what? What we need is a, a romantic trip to rekindle all of it. So I plan this trip to Kauai. At the end of the trip, I have to photograph a wedding that's there. So I'm like, we'll, we'll go for a week early and make it a rekindling trip. That does not go as planned. <laughs> <laughs> the night, the day that we left, I told uh, my best friends, don't have your baby. My best friend, they're, they're pregnant and I'm, I'm super close to both of them. Um, it's Justin and Yvette. Everybody knows who they are. I tell Yvette, don't have the baby. Wait till I get back. But she's super pregnant. Like it couldn't happen anytime. Sure enough, the morning that we leave, she goes into labor. I'm bummed, kind of sad about it. Try to talk to Susie about it. Susie's upset that I'm even talking about it. We get to Kauai. The next day we call back to see Justin Yvette and how their baby is. And uh, Yvette goes, Pi, all the advice that you gave on, you know, the fitness and the stretching and yoga and the exercise, it totally worked. And this was the smoothest pregnancy ever. So we asked, how was the delivery? She, I didn't ask her to say that. She just said it. But I immediately looked at Susie and, and Susie was livid. I could see it on her face because Susie's not a person that is healthy. And she, when she was pregnant, I gave her the same advice, but she didn't you know, follow. And we had two very difficult pregnancies. And so I tried to learn a lot about that too, to figure that out. Okay. We hang up. Susie doesn't say another word for the rest of the call. And I get off the phone and I go, you're angry. She goes, yeah. Didn't you see how if it attacked me? I go, I, she didn't attack you. That had nothing to do with you. She was excited. You know, she just had a baby. She's drugged up. You know that. Like, you're, you're drugged up. That's not an attack. And uh, she takes it all the way back. She goes, this is just like the day that we got married. That whole incident and again. you going out and supporting this person instead of supporting me. Just Now, mind you, seven years prior, uh, Susie would use that use any one of these past instances in, in arguments to, to level the playground, to, to bring you back to a place of like just defeat. And, uh, that friend of mine that I went out and consoled died three years later in a car accident with her. Uh, they just married with her husband and I'd begged and pleaded Susie to never bring that up again because she continued to do it even after they died. We went to their funerals too. <laughs> And uh, she continued to do it. Eventually, I, I, I just said, you got to stop. That was like six years, seven years in. And I didn't hear her bring that story up again until Kauai. I thought she, I thought she was like, for once, we'd resolve something. Then Kauai, and she brings it up in that argument. And Glenn, I, I don't, this part is difficult for me to like convey because it was like every motivation and reason and all the drive that I had to make it work to figure this out for God, for myself, for, you know, just wanting to feel like a successful human being and a good father. And it was done. 
It was, it, it, it like shut off like a light switch. I, I can't describe it any more clearly. Just one moment I wanted to make it work. And then it was like, the lights are out. That's it. I'm done. And the lights were out and I looked at her and I go, I'm done. I want a divorce. And she goes, what? And then what spewed for the next like 45 minutes was this, what we're talking about right now, but every fact, but just imagine it being 1000% emotionally charged. Every fact, everything of these coming out, me finally going, this is abuse. You have been abusing me for 15 years. And her actually owning it in that moment and apologizing. But it was it was too late. It was done. And the next day she said, I'm, I'm just going to go home early. And I said, that's a good idea. And then I spent five days by myself in Kauai, like the most romantic place in the world, by myself waiting for a wedding to happen. So I'm on the phone with Justin, like, dude, I'm going to F up this wedding. When they ask, like, when the when the priest goes, like, <laughs> does anybody, you know, have any objections? I'm going to be like, I do. I got some objections right here for you. I'm going to have a full-on wedding singer moment. Yeah. <laughs> this is going to be bad. Justin's like, no, you're going to be professional. You're going to do what you do. And again, going back to your point, I went into that wedding and I did what I did. I delivered actually some of the best photographs I'd taken to that point in my career. I shut it off. And it goes to what you said was just because you can cope with something, just because you can handle an emergency is not a sign of you being healthy. I was in my most unhealthy I've ever been in my entire life. And I could still go and deliver work that was impeccable to the client, to our team. And if you use that as a sign of, oh, you must be coping with this really well. No. But people would also go like, see, that's a sign that your marriage isn't so bad. Because if you were in a really bad marriage, you wouldn't be able to work this well. Yeah. That, that whole rationale. Those people need to shut the hell up. Yeah, like, I, I agree. Seriously. I, I agree. But when I got back, uh, Susie did say she wanted to. She, that was the first time she was like, we should go to counseling. And I'd had two weeks to cool off, you know, a week by myself and then another week. And I thought, why not? We've tried everything at this point. I've tried everything yeah. at this point. So why not go together? So we did. Found someone that she liked. We had tried counseling in the past at a few various points, but it never got past one or two sessions because as soon as the counselor would say something that she didn't like. It was done. It was done. Yeah. So this time she stuck with it. She found someone that she liked. Um, and we met with this woman for six or seven sessions. I just remember in the first session I laid out everything, how I feel. Susie was quiet. Second session. Here's, you know, nothing's changing. We'd get homework. It wouldn't get done. Um, we'd come back. I'd lay it out again. Nothing's changing. Susie would be quiet. And it went on like five, six times like this. And uh, on the fifth or sixth time, Susie goes, I just don't understand, doctor. Like, And she'd been saying this the whole time. I don't, I don't know what problem he sees in this. But now it was, you see that every week it's him. Every week he keeps bringing up these issues. I'm good. I'm happy. And I'm like, of course she's happy. I'm literally trying to do everything possible to make her happy. But there's nothing. Nothing is coming back. Nothing. I can't have conversations. We don't. She's on her phone all day. Nothing. 
I, I literally feel like I'm married to a wall, but it would be better if it was a wall because the wall wouldn't spew back negative stuff like that. At least yeah. talking the voice that it would just be words that bounce off the wall. Right. Yeah. But no, this wall actually spews back negativity. And the counselor goes, I'm seeing it, Susie. He is the one that's, you know, always bringing up these issues. And it was like, my eyes went wide. I was like, what yeah. in the hell is happening? I go, I'm being gaslit right in front of you and you're not seeing it. And that's when I stood up and I was like, I'm done. I go, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. I'm done with all this. Done. And I just walked out. And I'm sure like, again, that goes back to this counselor and Susie are probably like, yeah, he's the problem. Yeah, because medical the, model, you're the one acting out. You're right. being irrational. She's able to keep control. But she goes back to the the one topic we talked about is counselors just promoting toxic behavior. Absolutely. Yeah. And and the crazy part is that throughout this entire experience, every single counselor, every single person, every professional bit of guidance that I'd received, there was never a systematic format of what they did. There was never two methods that were similar. Yeah, Everyone just did their own thing. Yeah, it was just based on their own opinions of what they believed should work. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's a gamble because if they're in a bad relationship, they're going to give you relationship advice that's going to be just as bad as theirs. A thousand percent. The only problem is that advice is now backed by a license and a degreed certificate, which makes it that much more likely you're going to follow it and yeah. tank everything that you got going on. And that's the other scary thing is if you're in a bad relationship, one therapist could ruin that relationship for, for sure. good. For sure. Yeah. And to make that even more scary, when we go into the academic journals and find that yeah. 80% are not properly trained, what is your likelihood of finding the one? That is true. That is true. And then even if they are healthy-ish, what kind of frameworks are they going to use to guide you to identify what a healthy relationship is? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I left that meeting and uh, I never went to another counselor other than until hiring you. That was the last time I'd ever seen a counselor. And um, I remember feeling relief when I made the decision to just be done. I said, you know, the next, if I'm making the wrong decision, when I move out and I'm separated, I'll feel it. I'll, I'll, I'll miss Susie. And this is so, like 2017, right? Yeah. yeah. So this is towards the end of 2017 now that I moved out. No, I still feel good. Maybe it's because I'm living on my friend's sofa and I'm not truly by myself. When I'm truly by myself, maybe I'll feel different. Got an apartment in January, one bedroom. Went from having a home to like a one bedroom apartment. No, I feel fantastic. I had no furniture. I had a, I had a, a bed and a TV on the floor. Happiest I've ever been. No, I feel fantastic. Maybe when I get injured, I'll miss Susie. Like if there is that God, he was, he or she gave me my answer a week later. I tore my Achilles. I'm by myself in my apartment on the bed, just a TV on the floor. Nope. By myself, torn Achilles. I'm good. <laughs> Maybe when something truly catastrophic happens. The house floods and then I get a gallbladder infection that almost kills me. Oh my God. Yeah. It's like this. No, I'm still good. I'm fine. 
I remember going into surgery for my gallbladder infection <laughs> and the doctor goes, um, she goes, Pi, your gallbladder is infected and you need surgery. I go, cool doc. I got a trip to India. <laughs> I'll come back and I'll get that done like two weeks. He goes, no, you leave here. You're probably going to die. I go, oh, so like, are you guys want to do, she's like the emer like I've prepped the surgery room. You're going into surgery right now. Do you want to make any calls? I'm like, yeah, I, I had a, at that time I just started dating <laughs> Yen actually. And I, I go, I'd like to call my girlfriend. <laughs> I call Yen and I'm like, I'm going to go into surgery. It'll be fine. It's just a gallbladder. Yen's like, okay, you want me to come? No, we just barely started dating. I was like, oh, I don't want to bring, you. she came anyway. But the doctor goes, I don't think I've seen anybody so calm about to go into surgery after like just hearing that she asked, did he already get like his medication? She's like, he's, <laughs> he doesn't have any medication. I was like, doc, I, I've been through some shit. I'm good. <laughs> this pain is nothing compared yeah. to the emotional pain I've been through. Whether I live or die on that table, I'm good. <laughs> Let's do this. And, uh, I had that surgery, but I'm by myself again. I'm good. I'm fine. But those were my indicators of like, those were the right decisions, the healthy decisions. And that's kind of every time I'm in a position where someone's asking me, do I divorce? Well, first is learning this framework and understanding what does a healthy relationship look like going through all these different pieces. But if anyone's on that cusp, the easiest, the most simple advice I could give is don't make a decision yet. Separate. Mm -hmm. Gauge how you feel by yourself and and to be fair the only good reason in my opinion to leave any relationship i don't care if it's a friendship you know your best friend your family relationship or you know your spouse it's not for another person it's not because some other friend's going to make it better because this is better on the other side or maybe i found someone that's exciting and i'm going to have an affair or it should never be about anyone else the only reason to ever leave a relationship is because you'd be happier by yourself that's oh, it. totally. That's it. It's, so it's not an escape. It's not running from something. It's just truly I'm happier being on my own than being with this person. Correct. Because if you make the decision based on anybody else, you're not doing the work and you're not, you're not actually making the decision for you. You're, and you're seeing things unclearly. That's the worst part about it is you're making a decision without even seeing clearly. So those are my markers. And when I got to the end of that and I, and I thought, yeah, I still, Beyond my two children being born, I still don't have a positive memory of just Susie and me. It's the truth. Yeah. And then during that period, like you started to heal. Yeah. And you're dating again. Yeah. The divorce went for almost two years. So anybody stuck in that process, it's like, you should wait till you're, <laughs> you should wait till it's official before you start dating. And I'm like, MFR, <laughs> why don't you go through this process where someone, because basically the other person can drag and delay it as long as they sure. want. Why don't you go through this process where your life is upended and uprooted by another person who deserves no right to do this to you, but they can anyway. And you tell someone else how to live in that place. No. So after like four or five months of being separated, I started dating and figured out a good framework for that too. But eventually <laughs> I, I met Yen and the flip side of this story was you, you, you've asked several times, like, did you know, did you know it was unhealthy? Did you, Towards the end, I had a glimpse, I had an idea, but I did not know how unhealthy it was 
until about a year into my relationship with Yen. That's when I started looking back at the year and I go, this first year with Yen has been incredible. I thought it was just like the honeymoon phase, but it's not. This is how a relationship should actually be. This is what is shown by my framework. This is what it is. Mm -hmm. Now, when that relationship progressed, then it created the contrast that I needed to see what the other one was. That's when I truly saw what it was. And it's, I hesitate telling this entire story, even though we've stuck to just kind of the facts of this story, but I hesitate because at least the facts as far as I remember them, I hesitate because it's such an extreme one. Because now that I'm in something healthy, I can see where that one was. And it was so on the opposite side of the extreme. Most of the people that we meet with, mm-hmm. they're somewhere in between. They have something good. It's just not functioning right right now. We got to get to someplace better. You don't see that kind of like dichotomy in, in that. But I saw that. So as my own, that was one of the issues I came to you about, which was, you know, four years into this now relationship with my fiance and we have a life and we 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 are a family each of these happy moments kept bringing me back to how bad it was and how i'd wasted my life for 14 15 years and that was something that you and i had to i had to figure out yeah like the contrast is so extreme very yeah and uh you know on the same side on the flip side like being in this space and living the way that i'm living now especially on the work side I can look back and be like, oh my God, I can't believe I endured all that and put up with that. That was ridiculous. Yeah. And the thing is that this goes back to, again, ownership, right? I can't believe that I chose that. It's not Susie's fault. I think Susie is just genuinely a person that is lost and trying to figure things out for herself, like all of us, right? But how do you connect with somebody who can't connect with themselves? How do you create a relationship with someone who doesn't know who they are personally? That's not Susie's fault. That's my issue. My issue for seeking it out to begin with. My issue for staying in it. My issue for every one of these reasons. So when I explain all this, I think it's important to recognize the fact that that none of this was Susie's fault. This was my choice for being there, for staying there and making these decisions, which at many points in my marriage led to me even being suicidal. Like I would think, you know, it'd be easier if I just turn my car off this bridge right now while driving on the freeway. Crazy stuff. Sure. And I had nobody to blame for but myself. Yeah, because it was such a traumatic relationship. It was so toxic and abusive. Correct. Yeah. And the fact that you're able to endure. But can you look back now and just be like, instead of, man, I regret it. You're so much happier now. You're more accepting and like, okay, I'm just glad I'm here I'm just going to take the lessons that I learned. Absolutely. Like now there are cliches about this and, and, but you know, there's these ideas that you can only be as happy as the negative experiences you've had. Right. You think of these negative experiences as big digging this kind of like pit where you might plant a tree. Well, the bigger that pit is and the more you can say the more shit you put into the soil (laughs) and the more space you give it and the more then when you do plant the tree, the more opportunity there are for all these roots to spread and for that tree to become that much bigger. And for, so I I do believe that you can't be as happy as I am now without having seen what you could be. I don't think anyone could be as happy. Like you could kind of know happiness, but you'd also take it for granted, right? You kind of don't have the experiences to realize what it is that you have. 
So until you've been through some shit, you have no clue how to be happy. Yeah, so it's like a pendulum, right? Like it's you, it goes up the higher it goes, it swings the other way just as high. Yeah. And then that's that mental and emotional expansion until like you go through all these experiences, it settles down and then you have more perspective. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think that that's what happiness is versus people just trying to stay in this contained space and trying to make it work. They have small swings, but underneath, they're just not happy at all. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that, there's many reasons why I really appreciate having you as my business partner, but one of those things is the fact that you have seen the other side of that darkness to a the same extent, not only in the experience that we talked about in episode nine, what led you to give up your uh, the, the licensed social worker. So giving up that license is one thing, but then the 10 years of clinical social working experience prior to and during that time, you'd seen so many of these case studies, so many of these issues that that becomes invaluable as an experience and as a resource. Because personally, I don't want a business partner who's never, and I'm talking any venture, I don't want a business partner who's never seen difficulties and trials. I don't want a best friend who's never seen difficulty and trials. I don't want a marital partner who's never seen difficulty and trials because that's exactly what gives you the wisdom and the ability to say, okay, I've seen a lot. This is what's going to work. I don't want a counselor who has had the picture of happiness growing up and is now in this perfect relationship with her tech husband and everything looks fantastic. I don't want her to be giving me counsel because I don't think that, and this was an actual counselor that I'm, I'm kind of referring to, but that person hasn't seen enough to know what to do in these situations. They haven't, and in fact, they they see the world in a very simplistic mindset. They see the world as like zeros and ones. Oh, you just got to go and do this, and that's what the problem is, instead of actually seeing what's going on under the surface. So it's those experiences that both of us have had that make, I think, working together so incredibly valuable and makes the framework that we have so valuable because we have so much to draw on in terms of the experience. And I think the framework, these stories show how these frameworks came to be. Correct. Right. Because it it worked through a lot of pain, but also seeing the other side. Yeah. Now, in going to the cost of staying in a toxic marriage, right? Take this back. I mean, had this decision been made anywhere up to the, you know, within the first seven years, I mean, pre-wedding, nobody would have even remembered it. Remember that time Pi dated whatever even after it would have just been a minor life blip but it kept snowballing kept getting bigger and bigger now children are involved now when it's actually done 14 years into it well we're talking uh legal expenses between the two of us that were over a hundred thousand dollars we're talking the emotional damage to the children and one of the reasons that i pulled the trigger when i did was because i got the studies of you know if I wait even longer, it becomes more traumatic. My kids were in this sweet spot where if I made the decision when they were six and under, they would internalize it much better. So I thought this is if this is going to happen. This is when it needs to happen. But there's still emotional damage there. There's still trauma there that has to be worked on from the kid's side. Then there's the damage of financial damage. Um, the law doesn't care if you started a business in your relationship, in a marriage. The law doesn't care who did what in the home. Who did what to each other? 
or who did what in the business. It just assumes that it's 50-50, yeah. even if it's not. So the law says that she owns 50% of my ownership. So I give up everything. Over a million dollars in assets, home. My, I sold my sports car just to have extra money. I sold everything just to buy back my ownership so that I could continue paying monthly the alimony and child support. So to be 35 and for the first few months not be able to see my kids when I wanted to, because that was something that was being held like almost over me. And uh, to be alone in an apartment with zero dollars in my bank account and a TV on the floor and a bed, that cost is always, it blows me away because you can rewind and see anywhere along this journey, had I made a decision, had I understood, it wouldn't have led to that place, that cost. But even then, this is where I can understand you. Where you got to a place where you're willing to say, you didn't even read that document, by the way. That was the crazy part. When I asked you, I was like, did you bring a lawyer to that meeting? Did you read the document? And you're like, no, no it didn't matter. And it's the same thing for me. When people hear what I gave up, my fortune, I, I zeroed out, and that I have to still provide I'm not going to give you a number, but it's a crazy number. It's more than, it's a mortgage payment and a half in California yeah. every month. When they hear that, they go, that's insane. I would never do that. But I think back to that moment and I go, I don't care what it costs. I will sign on the dotted line to have my health and my emotional freedom back. So I know that feeling that you have. Yeah, because the benefits far outweigh the consequences. Even though it's severe, the benefits are way better. Yeah, you got out easy, bro. In my opinion. No, that's true. You got yeah, if, you, if you do this comparison thing, yeah. I'm not going to lie. Oh. You win this one. You win this one. I'm just kidding. There is no winning, but I did win. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the, I hope these two episodes kind of really help our audience put this into perspective because there is such a substantial cost of staying in an unhealthy environment or relationship. We just don't compute it. We don't think through it. We only think of the cost of leaving. And we don't properly weigh what it is that we're doing until it's until we've had so much pain that that pain outrides everything else. Or it forces you to make a different decision. Yeah. Yeah. And ultimately, like redefining what safety and security means. Ultimately, I think it's it's about if you live your truth, that is the ultimate safety at that point. For sure. Yeah. One thousand percent. Okay. Well, thanks I, for doing that with me. Yeah, we need to like go do some jujitsu or something. No, we, we, after we this. gotta we gotta let loose after this, man. <laughs> <laughs> so that's it for episode ten. I hope you guys enjoyed. I hope you guys have been enjoying the podcast thus far. Glenn and I have been working really hard, not only on the podcast, but on the entire framework that we developed over the past six months. We're now. Uh, in clinical trials. Everything is going incredibly well. We have clients that have come through the program. Um, yeah, it, it's amazing to see clients who have gone through the counseling experience and everything and for them to come and say, in an hour, I've learned more than I have in the past decade doing this, you know, from counseling to this. And, and that's kind of our whole thing is like, therapy should not be a subscription service. That needs to be our secondary tagline. Better relationships in weeks, not years. That's our first one. The second mm -hmm. one should be relationship therapy should not be a subscription service. Well, I agree. And then the outcomes, you know, we get to the heart of it so quickly that 
they're just amazed like we're already there in yeah. weeks yeah. In, in a few weeks we get to the heart of something yeah. and that's yeah. where they can decide like mm -hmm. do we want to keep going and and work through this or is there you know do we want to go and do other things but they at least get to that place where they can see and and make their own decisions and and understand what's happening and, and it's been an incredible thing yeah and it makes it gratifying that we used our pains to help other people to find happiness for themselves our pains in a hell of a lot of academic research <laughs> for sure for so, sure yes but thank you guys so much for listening if you guys would like to subscribe to the podcast we would absolutely love that from here on out this is really going to be about the research that we're doing the case studies everything that we're doing academically everything that we're doing with uh, individual clients of course we don't actually talk about individual and personal experiences or anything that can be identified what we will talk about though are the very real experiences that all of us have from being in similar situations that's going to be really fun uh, for both of us, unlike episode nine and 10, which was not so much fun yes. for each of us, <laughs> but um, we have that. And then also, if you guys would like to get a 20 minute consult with Dr. Glenn, whether it's individually or as a couple, you guys can sign up at 12 weekrelationships.com. You also find a relationship assessment tool right there. You can put in your email, get a little quiz and guide to see where you stand and what could be worked on. Absolutely. That's it for us. Thank All you guys. so much. Peace. Thank you. <laughs>